welcome to the Thinking Pilates podcast, where show after show, we bring you a different way to think about teaching Pilates. We make you dig deep, ask the tough questions, and keep unraveling the rich layers of teaching movement. I'm Chantel Lopez, founder of Skillful Teaching, an international education company just for Pilates and movement teachers, and author of Moving Beyond Technique. I am so gratefully joined in this delightful and crazy endeavor by my sometimes co-host and podcast co-founder, master teacher, and mentor, Deborah Colway, as well as the brilliant and funny consummate explorer of movement and people, James Crater. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the 44th episode of the Thinking Pilates podcast. Holy cow, 44 episodes? I don't even know how that's possible, um, but it's pretty exciting. We have got a full house this episode. Hi, Deborah and James. How are you guys doing? Very well, thank you. Hi, Chantel. <laughs> Hi, Chantel and Deborah. I'm doing great. Thank you. Awesome, awesome, awesome. And our guest today is Trina Altman. No doubt you've heard the name, especially as of late. Hey, Trina, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm so happy to be here with you guys. Yeah, awesome. This is going to be. Um, this is going to be crazy and fun. And I think um, we've been really looking forward to this. We've been talking a lot about you and um, about your work. And so just thrilled to be exploring that with you. Um, For those of you who don't know Trina uh, or her work, Trina is a yoga and Pilates teacher in the LA area who is very quickly expanding her reach both online and internationally. Trina is also the creator of Yoga Deconstructed and Pilates Deconstructed, which was um, a video or an online workshop recently featured on Fusion Pilates EDU, which is super thrilling. And she's also a teacher trainer for the yoga tune-up method. The latest and very exciting update on you, Trina, is that you have recently been selected as one of the top 10 finalists in the Pilates Anytime Instructor Contest. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Yay, Trina. exciting. I know. Holy cow, girl, you've got a lot going on, that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Good things, definitely. Yeah. Very exciting. All good things. Um, I love seeing you all over the place. I'm seeing you on Instagram, and I'm seeing you on Facebook, and just talking to you and getting to know you more over the last month or so has been really super sweet. Um, But let's dig in here. So the three of us have been talking quite a bit about your work, and we thought that we'd do what any good podcast hosts uh, do, and we'd start with what we think is most important. <laughs> um, but really what, what we want to get at, I think, uh, to start us off with is just to look at um, where you started, because you have some a, a very interesting kind of origin story, if I can use that totally geeky term. And um, something that we've noticed is that you seem as though you've navigated well in or at least explored both the analytical and creative fields. And we've been struck by, I think all of us, by how you can or have been able to equally draw from kind of a left brain and right brain approach in your work. So one of the things that we were curious to find out about is what did you want to be when you grew up? (laughs) Well, I didn't, uh, I guess I wanted to be a fashion designer for the most part. When I was really young, I wanted to be a cartoonist just because I loved drawing and I oh wow, drawing and coloring. And that was kind of the only, I was like, this is fun and you could get paid to do it. But that was, you know, pre, uh, digital animation. 
Uh, but yeah, I always had a love for art and making art, but I've also always been a questioner and a, um, a thinker and an analyzer and a uh, so I guess the fashion design thing, I remember I had fashion plates when I was a kid. I don't know if you had those. Uh-huh, totally, <laughs> totally. Um, but yeah, my parents weren't so into that idea. I wanted to go to Parsons and they were like, nah, no, you're not going to New York. <laughs> you're going to go to a regular undergraduate college and, you know, get uh, a degree in something that is, you know, a little more sort of stable or easier to get a job in. Mm. Um, so I ended up uh, studying political science at Brown and uh, I guess it was my first sort of, well, I like political science courses, so I'll take a bunch of them. And then I guess, yes, I'll major in it because my friend is doing this internship in Washington, DC. And uh, it sounds like, so I'll join her. <laughs> um so so yeah I interned um the Senate after my junior year in college and then in the White House the first um term of Bill Clinton after my uh before my senior year in college and then quickly decided I didn't want to work in politics or live in DC. <laughs> so my life was a lot of trying different careers and realizing that that they weren't a good match, mm-hmm. um, but uh, enjoying the experience and learning so much from each one of those little dips that I, I took. There were there were many of them, so I don't know how many you would want to hear about. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I um, think I think, uh, I think actually um, James is kind of curious about some part of where you ended up. So you <laughs> you wanted to be a cartoonist and a fashion designer, but then you ended up. So that's you know, incredibly creative, but you ended up following this kind of more rigid analytical path. Um, but you did, you did do a couple of really interesting things along the way. I've followed your career for a while, Trina, for, uh, the first time I heard about you, you were sort of like a, like a Jill Miller sidekick name. And then Mm -hmm. sudden you like your TrinaAltman.com. So (laughs) I've uh, I've been infatuated with your work for a while. So I've listened to you on a few podcasts and uh, sort of know a little bit about that. And what I didn't know was that you were in Washington, D.C. for any period of time. So it's like, oh, my God, you did that, too. Yeah, right. I know. After Washington, D.C., I know you at some point ended up at like Goldman Sachs and working for Goldman Sachs. So can you tell us a little bit about that? And then I think what I'm mostly interested, because it's like, cool, you worked at Goldman Sachs, so what? But like, what did you, you know, like, so what? So did a lot of people. But what, like, what did you learn at Goldman Sachs? And most importantly, like, what did you learn at Goldman Sachs that you can sort of apply to your work today? Uh, Gosh, I mean, I think the biggest thing I learned at Goldman Sachs is that uh, life balance is really important because if you work your life away, you have no life. And so that was a really good lesson to learn, you know, uh, 
the very first year out of college, it was a hard lesson to learn because, um, you know, I was, I was always an overachiever and, you know, I did get straight A's and, uh, I was raised in a way that was like, okay, you, we don't care what you do. Just get a job with health insurance benefits, like very practical, you know, like pay your, pay your bills. Don't go into debt, (laughs) um, kind of, uh, upbringing. And, uh, I think unconsciously, well, my father is really good with math and he's an engineer and he loves, um, studying economics and finance and, um, the markets in the same way that I nerd out on movement and, and yeah, but there's a much better return on your investment with what he's doing in case you guys didn't notice. (laughs) So I think, you know, I was really hoping to, he always said to me, Trina, don't ever be paid for your time. And when I went to Brown, they they basically, they recruited for three major things at the career services center because he was like, get yourself to the career services center, interview and get a job. And they were mostly recruiters were from the Peace Corps, um, advertising agencies, consulting firms and investment banks. And I was exposed to all of the, you know, investing through my father growing up. And um, so, and was always a feminist too. And he would always always say, you know, well, he who has the gold rules and, you know, money is what buys freedom. And, and so I was like, well, maybe here's my chance. And at the worst, it'll get me to New York. <laughs> so it got me to New York. And then, yes, I, I quickly, um, I, you know, I, I was uh, definitely an affirmative action. My math skills are nowhere close to my father's or, or um, anyone in that field. <laughs> uh, yeah, spreadsheets were, were definitely not my thing. And, you, you know, that's kind of a bare minimum once, once you get into that world. Yeah. So, yeah, I, um, so, I got out quick. I, you know what? Um, you know, uh, Deborah and Chantel and I have been kind of going over questions and sort of like what we're what we're really interested in knowing, not only from you, but from like other from other uh, podcast guests. And I'm going to kind of go off script a little bit here from sort of what we were talking about, because you said something yeah. really interesting and something that is like very relevant in my and sort of where I'm at in, in my career right now. As you said, your dad said, don't sell your time. And that is something I've been struggling with or not struggling with, like that's so overstatement, but like (laughs) thinking about about for a while now, right? Like if you take like our current Pilates studio model, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm at the studio, I work, I work client hours between like 35 and 40 client hours a week. That's a lot, right? Yes. I can't really multiply me and I'm, you know, and that business model is not investable. Like no one, if, you know, if, if it was on like the shark tank, no one is going to invest in that business because you can't replicate me. You can't, you can't make any money on your investment with that. Right. So right. your dad is right. It's not investable. Selling your time is not an investable thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, I've been sort of thinking, you know, uh, playing with like, well, well then what's next, right? Like that's, what's paying my bills currently, but like, what is next? So do you think that that sort of thought from your dad and sort of the Goldman Sachs time sort of inspired you or at least maybe backbrained, um, uh, shoved you in the direction of doing some of your online work or like what, 
Like, how does that sort of play out? Because I'm asking selfishly. Like, I want to know, like, what are, what are you thinking? Like, what are you going to? Because you're right. It's not investable. And so I'm kind of curious. Like, what, it, right. what have you thought about that? Yeah. I mean, what um, I've, you know, when I left Goldman Sachs, I did a lot of uh, temping, which was, I guess, you know, then they sometimes call it freelancing because it sounds nicer. And I didn't have the, <laughs> I didn't have the typing skills to get uh, a secretarial job, which they called administrative assistant because it was more PC. So I was uh, just, uh, I was receptionist because my typing skills. But what happened was I was a receptionist in a lot of different environments. Uh-huh. And uh, when I grew up, I lived in a lot, well, I, I went to a lot of different schools and then in my adult life, I've lived in a lot of different places. And I guess where I'm going with this is uh, I've always had to figure out what I didn't like to find what I eventually did like. And then whenever I find what it is I do like, I get so excited about it Mm -hmm. that I'm good at selling it. So for example, when I, you know, after working as uh, like jobs where they were more, you know, office jobs. I mean, they were still creative. Like I worked as an assistant designer at Calvin Klein and mm-hmm. Tahari. And uh, I mean, I worked as like a librarian at a photo archive for fine art. I um, worked at Condé Nast for a while, helping with photo shoots for, you know, different magazines. And I think all of that then laid the foundation for me to know, okay, I definitely want to do something that is creative where I'm self-employed, but it also requires um, critical thinking and to not ever have to stop learning. Mm -hmm. And so when I worked at Barney's, that was, um, you know, we were on commission and I was going to FIT at night and I would just get so excited about what I was selling, you know, and it's like, it's not so easy to sell a thousand dollar black t-shirt. But, <laughs> but I was, yeah, I had a lot of reasons why you should buy that $1,000 black t-shirt and I was really excited about it, you know? And, and, um, I mean, some of them I owned because I got them for $200 because I'd worked at the Barney's warehouse sale and wait for it to be marked down a, you know, gazillion times. But I learned so many skills in my twenties that, and I was so depressed in my 20s and just, it was like a horrible second adolescence in so many ways because I just wanted to be the person that knew what I wanted to do. And I just kept bouncing from thing to thing. And now when I look back, I say, thank goodness I did all that because that's the only reason I feel like that I've been able to be successful in this career is because of what I learned <laughs> through the misery. <laughs> no, it wasn't all misery, but it was definitely, um, you know, like follow the bouncing ball for quite a long time. Um, you know, but uh, when I got tired of working retail and working for other people, I had my own jewelry line that I sold to Barney's. And, and by doing that, I had to figure out how to market it, how to um, sell it to the buyers and um, how to get my stuff out there, quote unquote, how to find the materials. And so all of those skills 
I, I used to like, you know, I mean, this was when the first iMac came out and I had the big blue one and I would print out the pictures and then get scissors and cut them and then tape them onto this really nice like cardstock and, you know, put it together as like my lookbook to take to the buyers to show uh-huh. them my jewelry. And, and now looking back, I'm like, oh my God, that's social media now. Like the, the back then it was a lookbook. And you had a PR rep, but now it's, it's Instagram, it's Facebook. Mm -hmm. So they were all translatable skills. But when I started the career that I'm in now, I was so far behind everybody who had been doing movement for their whole life that, you know, had gone to school at Loyola Marymount and done their Pilates training as an undergrad or, you know, were just finishing their master's at UCLA and, you know, world dance and choreography. And so I had a learning curve there um, that once I finally, you know, I mean, I, I will never be where the movement people who've been moving their whole lives are in a, in a career sense, but I guess I kind of have this bifurcated path of, of half movement and half sort of corporate practical marketing selling, mm-hmm. and I've put it together. I so. wanted to say, you know, thanks to James for totally commandeering the conversation. <laughs> in, in it, but But I think this is actually, it's perfect because this is like, and thank you, Trina, for being so vulnerable, because I feel like this is where we wanted to go. And it is interesting. I mean, what, what the same thing jumped out to me, um, trading dollars for hours is how I've always talked about it and thought about it, right? It's like what you're saying, James, and what yeah. you were saying, Trina, it's, it, it is, it's not scalable, right? We cannot just show up. I mean, we can, but, but it, it, it's not expansive enough. Um, so that's so interesting. And also there's something else that strikes me about what you're saying, Trina, which I think a lot of people don't, I mean, it's hard, but they don't, we don't necessarily realize that this is the process, right? Of discovering your passion is that you have to try a lot of different things. You have to suck at a lot of different things or be mm-hmm. okay at a lot of different things, fail at a lot of different yeah. things, because that's truly like, that's the only way uh, we get to the place where we can really identify our passion. You know, there's a lot of like uh, new agey woo woo literature out there nowadays about like being positive and find your passion and what color is your parachute. And it's like, it's just not that easy folks. Like you don't just know what your passion and your purpose is. You, you really do have to go through sometimes these grueling, um, you know, really tremendously uh, challenging times and experiences to get to the place where you are, um, you've landed on something that, as you said, is like a combination of all of these skills and experiences. So it's, it's wonderful. It's really just so nice to get to know you in this way. And I also want to just say bullshit about one thing. The fact you, your work is really refreshing and I've been looking at it more and more and to, I think from my own perspective, Trina, to say that, you know, you're never going to be where others are who've been moving all their lives. I think, you know, I think that that's just totally a matter of perspective because what you're offering has such tremendous value. And I think that, that I don't even know if I would say new to, because we've talked about your longtime experience as a yoga practitioner and, and being physical, you know, I just think you have so much to offer. It's like, it's kind of just feels like, not true that you don't have as much, you know, or you're not at, at this place 
as some of these other people are. So for what it's worth. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, yeah, I, I think in a, a lot of ways, not being a dancer has helped me. You know, there were so many things that I struggled to learn um, from dancers about Pilates and there was a language barrier. And uh, so it's because a lot of the people that I teach are, you know, have way less body awareness than I do. Um, because I, I had that struggle, yes, it probably made it easier for me to teach certain movement types of skills to others in a more, I guess, like reader's digest kind of way. Yeah. <laughs> I always get that feedback of like, you, you make it so easy to understand. And, and a lot of times it's just because my Oklahoma like comes out and I'll be like, yeah, just put your butt there, not there. <laughs> There, <laughs> you know, it's normal people conversation, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not, you know, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be this heady science, like literally, pick it up and put it there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, what do you think? Not being in the thing, um, sort of, sort of does for you, right? <laughs> I lost you for just a second. You faded uh, out. Yeah, it looks like, and you're going to hear my, my dog is now having a fit, everyone. I'm going to apologize. He's. Hi, little you know, dude. Hi, little dude. It's, it's, it's not playtime. He thinks it's playtime. Um, I told you it was a full house, everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, little dude, if you follow the Instagram, that's little dude. So, uh, yeah, basically, the, um, you know, that Midwesterner, like, sort of way of just saying it. And then the lack of or the absence of the, the formal training sometimes just makes it more approachable for everyone else to understand what you're saying, right? It's like, just pick the thing up and move it there. Just do, just do the thing instead of right. solid, yeah. colorful ways of expressing, you know, just pick your leg up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, where people say, oh, I've been stretching my psoas forever because so-and-so told me my psoas is tight and it's still <laughs> tight. And, and I'll just be like, Dr. Phil pops out of my mouth. And I'm like, so how's that working for you? Yeah, like, exactly. you know? <laughs> <laughs> so let's try something different because it's obviously not working for you. Um, but not in a co yeah, confrontational way, just in a like, you know, yeah. Uh, something I really appreciate too about your work, Trina, because uh, for me, I have a hard time um, keeping things simple. I overcomplicate every damn thing possible. I mean, <laughs> it's something I really have to work at, and so it's 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 why I would say that your work feels refreshing to me. But I want to kind of hand the conversation over to Deborah for a moment because, um, you know, we the three of us, uh, Trina and Deborah, and I had a chance to speak um, not too long ago, and. Deborah, I know you were really, really curious about this kind of um, the path, uh, you know, in the blending of yoga and Pilates. So what, what have you got for Trina? Mm. I've been sitting here hoping you, <laughs> that you would forget I was sitting here. No way. Um, I just want to say before I ask any questions <clears throat> that it's always, I actually am enjoying just having the audio, uh, you know, and not the video because uh, I'm listening more, I think. Um, and it's just uh, very nice and interesting to just be able to sit here and listen 
to you, Trina. And um, I know when we spoke last time, I had felt that there were a couple of um, similarities in terms of um, the kind of household that we might have grown up in. Um, my dad said, <laughs> don't ever work for anyone else. Mm. And I took that to heart. So listening to all of this conversation I is so interesting um, about how we make these choices and go to the places that we go to. And I kind of did a quick down memory lane as you were talking about the different experiences that you've had. And um, uh, so for me, just briefly, the don't work for anybody else, I... I took that to heart for a very, very long time. And I have now been working for other people almost probably equally as long or more. And um, at first it was so very difficult because I was so dang stubborn. And I, you know, I just like really, I didn't want anyone telling me what to do or how to do it. And I've just been incredibly independent and stubborn um, no wonder I like you so much. <laughs> the thing, you know, I mean, I, I am so appreciative of having now worked for other people, uh, because I, um, I just, there's so many other things to learn that are not being, um, generated by my own mind and my brain. I just, it's just so fascinating. And, um, I want to say, so that's all on that. It's just interesting to think about all this, and I'm glad to be able to sit here and listen to it. But the other thing I wrote down was um, this idea of easy to understand because um, I feel like that is also a, a driver for me. Um, my husband is from the Midwest, and whenever I try and teach him, he basically always just says to me, just tell me what to do. <laughs> you know? And so I hear his voice and catch myself when I'm teaching. I, I sort of like have that bubble coming out of my mouth as if I was a cartoon and it's as if the dog is trying to understand what I'm saying. And I, <laughs> and I just catch myself and I'm like, what are you saying, Deborah? You know, what are you really saying? And I also feel though that these early influences from our upbringing you know, if in fact we did grow up in a family situation that, um, how can I, that was, you know, that really influenced us in such a way that we kept it with us. Um, my upbringing, there it was very tumultuous. There was a lot of um, unspoken and I don't want to go here very, go there very much, but uh, I feel like my um drive has always been to make sure everybody is comfortable with everybody else and that everybody else in the room knows what's being talked about. And I may be saying something that I'm going to regret, but <laughs> this a little bit goes back to my, the time when I grew up, everyone was smoking pot all the time. And I ended up being the person in the group who would interpret for everybody else, you know, because these crazy conversations would be going and I would be the one that would say, 
no, what she really means is this, or what he meant to say is this. And, <laughs> and I've noticed that that's a driving force in my teaching is to <laughs> get people to, I really, really want people to be able to feel comfortable with how their mind is relating to their body. And, um, you know, again, something that, uh, I go by is that Chanyam Trumpa said one time, you know, it doesn't matter how brilliant what you're saying is. If <laughs> the person isn't understanding you, <laughs> yeah. it, just, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. And so it's, um, this is, these are important things. And, uh, so I do, I really appreciate the whole deconstruct aspect. And um, I, I know we, I've also wondered sometimes in terms of how we've all got on this path. Uh, we're also bright. Yeah. And it's almost like um, it's not enough to be a Pilates instructor or a movement teacher. There's that part of us maybe left over from our upbringing was like, what? that's what you're doing with your life. And, um, so we've had to kind of make it more complicated, more complicated, more intellectual, more something, um, to satisfy a need in ourselves. And what, uh, what I keep coming back to is that's not, I need to take responsibility for that, you know, and, and, um, if I need to, um, nourish myself on a level that's not necessarily going to come from the teaching that I need to do that. But then when I'm actually with people, it has to be, uh, you know, focused on what really what, what they want to get and what they're going to get. But that's a tangent. Um, I think <laughs> what Chantelle is, is talking about Trina is that, you know, I, I was very unathletic. My family was not athletic. Um, my elementary school didn't even have a playground. I mean, I grew up in a time when girls wore dresses to school. Um, I had a bicycle and a pair of roller skates and, um, and I started doing yoga when I was 13 years old. And um, I went with my mom cause she, she decided that she wanted to go take this class. And so the interest, so for me, yoga has been, um, sort of what got me going and it was a lifesaver for me. And, um, when I got involved in teaching Pilates, uh, I never compared Pilates with yoga. I didn't see them as, um, as, uh, taking care of the same needs in my life or, or anything like that. And I, I just really was curious and didn't have the chance to ask you when we spoke last time. Um, I, I'm curious, how you do see those two practices or um, methods, if you will, do you, do you, do you go to them for different things? Do they, do they nourish you, serve you, you know, feed you differently? And um, if you are willing to talk about that at all. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I, I kind of, I was just thinking maybe, the way I could use an example. So say yoga and Pilates, fruits and vegetables. Like you, I think both are, you know, I love fruits and I love vegetables. I love yoga and I I love Pilates. And I think I tend to see uh, so many similarities in the two 
for, for me, Pilates has always been all about the apparatus, mm-hmm. um, and the spring resistance. And, you know, um, I love yoga, but I've always felt that, you know, and when I say yoga, I'm talking about the asana. Um, there are so many limbs to yoga, but for now I'm, I'm just talking about asana and the, the sort of movement part of yoga. Uh, it's very limited as to what you can do because your tools are only, uh, a lot of times nothing, a mat or the grass, or if you're lucky, then you also have blocks or blankets or straps, maybe a wall. And so for the, from a physical perspective, uh, I always try to give my yoga students an experience um, that might be somewhat similar to what they could get from the equipment, the Pilates apparatus. And then I try to give my Pilates apparatus students an experience of, of what you would get in the yoga studio that you're not getting from the body of work that is Pilates. Because I just think they're both so important and you you... Um, benefit from both. And I think that's, it's really what drives my creativity because a lot of times I always write out a class syllabus. I I teach three group classes a week. And sometimes uh, lately I've been playing with, you know, I'll write out my syllabus for my uh, yoga class. And then I actually bring it with me and use it to teach my reformer class. And, uh, and it's been a wonderful challenge for, for my brain and, and I, I think for my students as well. Um, and a lot of times I've done the reverse. I'll have a, a syllabus for my reformer class or, you know, say a syllabus of exercises I taught in my private session to a client on the, you know, equipment. And I try to translate that into a, a syllabus for my yoga class students. And how about though for yourself? Um, um, well for myself, yeah. Like what moves to practice one or the other? And I don't know, maybe, I don't know what the yoga that you got introduced to and, and practice, you know, for me, um, I've been pretty much involved with the Iyengar method, the Iyengar work for a long, long time. And, and, um, there are lots of props and there are lots of supports if you're lucky enough to have a studio where they have it all, just the same as, you know, with the Pilates, if you're mm-hmm. lucky enough to have a studio where they have it all. And so um, the yoga that I know there, it isn't just a mat or a grass, you know, there's, there's a lot of, right. Yeah. That I've been, you know, fortunate to study with are incredibly skilled. Their knowledge base is unbelievable to me often. And, um, and they, they're, you know, I'm lucky in that way because they, they really do know how to um, make it work for anybody at, you know, whatever level their body is able to do. So, um, but I think I was curious, um, what was the term Chantil and um, James that the, the two words that Trina had used? Um, mystical and pragmatic. Thank you. Mystical and pragmatic. So, um, <laughs> You know, so for me, you call it, well, the last time you and I spoke, we decided I was more of a unicorn and not a, a something else. And it had to, <laughs> remember that it had to do with you know, and I said, I well, kind of like a, 
ex-flower child, but I'm just, uh, I don't, I don't want to push you, but in your relationship to yoga, do you enjoy or do you allow yourself to go to places that are not just um, organizing yourself to get a physical experience? Yeah. Um, well, my yoga journey has been pretty similar to every other journey that I take in the sense of I explore everything. So I first started with Bikram and I practiced Bikram for a long time. Actually, no, before I started with uh, Kripalu and then an Iyengar DVD and then years of Bikram. And then uh, when I lived in New York City, I went to a Shivananda studio for a while and I uh, tried Jiva Mukti and Anyasara. I did Kundalini yeah. for a full year. And then I finally got to doing my 200-hour teacher training. And that involved like a deep dive in Ayurveda mm-hmm. and philosophy. So I would say that every part of my life um, that I've had a relationship to yoga, it's been to a different aspect of it in a specific way because uh, I have ADD, (laughs) I guess would be maybe one way of saying it, or because my upbringing. So my upbringing is that I cannot stand when people are stuck in a ghetto or a tribe. And so I always want to see the big picture because I saw the negative ramifications of only um, viewing things from a smaller container mm-hmm. or a l- limited perspective. You mean and like so it's, uh, it's from Israel, it's better. <laughs> Yeah, anything. So, you know, if your only view of movement is one methodology or your only view of yoga is one style, you're really missing out on a lot. Mm -hmm. And you can't have a full conversation, I don't think, about uh, the topic or the subject in general. So, you know, if you talk to me in 1993, what I was really jiving on yoga wise would have been one thing. Whereas, you know, if you talk to me now, what I'm jiving on yoga wise is another. So I don't know if that helps answer the question, but I'm like that, not just with yoga, obviously with my career and all the different careers I've had. Um, and then with every movement modality, beyond yoga and Pilates. So I am interested in practice, you know, strength and conditioning and dance and uh, somatics. So uh, yeah, I really, and then I'm also, I'm not a woo-woo person at all. Like Mm -hmm. I loved the woo-woo of (laughs) yoga when I did my 200 hour only in the sense that it was the first time in my life that I was surrounded by a group of people that were just sweet and nice and kind and weren't there for any sort of ulterior motive because it wasn't school where you're competing with each other or work where you're competing with each other. And so it was a really lovely experience. But, you know, no, when when we talked about the Kundalini Shakti going up you know, your spine and being enlightened and leaving your body, I was not on board with that. But I loved that other people were and that they found solace and, um, you know, uh, a sense of, of 
peace from those concepts and, and ideas. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I've just always been an atheist because of my upbringing and being exposed to so many different religions from a young age and seeing how everybody thought that they were right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I just, I see that in other worlds too, whether it's the tribalism of yoga or the tribalism of Pilates or the tribalism of politics when I worked in DC or the tribalism of the different investment banks um, on Wall Street. Uh, so I think this is so, um, it's, this is really just such an exciting conversation and it's, um, it's, it's great because, uh, I know Trina, you've listened to the podcast quite a bit and I feel like, uh, James and I and Deborah and I have talked about this a lot in, in different ways on the podcast and off the podcast of, I mean, essentially what I hear you saying is, you know, reflecting this idea of openness and, and not, um, you know, not needing it to be one way is right and one way is wrong. Um, and I, you know, Deborah and I have talked about this in depth uh, in terms of discernment. You know, that's the language we've used. James and I have talked about it in terms of like, you know, this kind of student-centered approach to teaching where we're, we're open and present and we're not needing to be right and have all of the answers. And we talked about this with Anula in the last podcast of kind of de-identifying, like, you know, with it, with, we are this or we are that. And it's, it's very powerful. And I, again, I think that that's probably one of the reasons, certainly not the only reason, but one of the reasons that um, you and I have kind of, you know, been attracted to each other, that we all have an affinity for one another is that there's this, this relatability that, that we're all kind of on board with the idea of, you know, learn, study, grow, you know, get, get really invested, be very passionate about what we're doing, but we're not necessarily saying that one method is the, the best method or the one way or one way of movement is the, the only way to move. You know, it's, it, it just brings so much more um, joy, I think, to the experience of like letting it, the work unfold. And, and then again, to come kind of full circle to this way that even though you're clearly super, super intelligent and you've had all of these various experiences that you're still able to just sit back and, and approach it in a very kind of, um, you know, honest and earnest, simple way. It's, it's really beautiful. It's just really exciting um, that, that we're talking about this and the conversation is going in this direction. Um, because I think it does dovetail on a lot of the conversations we've been having. And I, I think that perhaps it's also, and, you know, I'm curious from all of you to know if you feel like this is true, but from my perspective recently, especially, um, it's reflective of a conversation that's going on in a lot of places with a lot of people in our community. Mm-hmm. Well, I think both parts of the conversation are happening. I mean, if you guys at your age are talking about uh, the not being paid for your time part of the conversation, um, you know, and then there's those of us who are looking at, um, you know, a different phase of life, shall we say, uh, and thinking, wow, um, how am I going to be able to gracefully move away from being a person who pretty much, 
my whole life has only been, you know, paid for my time. If, if I understand what that phrase means. Um, so there's that part of the conversation, which is huge. Um, and especially given uh, where Pilates and yoga is going corporate, corporately with the, you know, the onslaught of um, what's it called club Pilates. And now with the, all the, the pods, the yoga pods, there's so many of these places now are becoming more corporate. I'm honestly just saying that out loud. I'm not dissing any of it, but I think it's going to have an impact on all of us pretty quickly. And then the other part is, um, what's the other part? Uh, so there's the financial aspect of it. And then there's also just the fact that our lives are moving so quickly. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I say this only again because of my age, but um, it's just I can't believe it when I look back and think about the difference of of our industry twenty years ago, maybe even fifteen years ago, ten years ago, and you know now I've been involved for over thirty years, um, and it just there's just so much. I think what's important in a way that all that we're having these conversations is um, because, uh, um, here comes my unicorn. We're all in this together. (laughs) We actually are all in this together and there's gotta be room for us. I mean, there's too many dang people. We have to make room for each other and, and, and let it be okay that we each choose the path that we choose for ourselves somehow. Um, embrace um all the diversity because that's the only way to go so i think that's why the the conversation those two parts that you just said chantil are so so important i need to sit here and listen to you guys talk because um because i don't think the way you think um part some but not all and um and it's and I'm very clear that I that it can get easier as you get older to want to stay in the comfort of your tribe to oh, you know just not want to have to keep pushing the envelope mm-hmm. and um, uh, yeah it's just I, I don't know if I'm expressing this part very well but I it's like stay awake stay awake. And, and stay awake and stay curious and stay loving. I mean, I honestly think too, it's just like be interested in it because um, because another person is interested in this and, and I'm and I'm honestly curious what it's like for you or you or you, you know. And um that's what this podcast, I mean, I think that's for me a lot of the the brilliance of this podcast is is um is the world that it opens up mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah i think that uh you know there's a club pilates that's like five minute drive from my house and i take classes there all the time and um you know it's it i I draw a parallel to when i think back to yoga and bikram yoga was kind of 
you know, like a little bit of the equivalent in the sense of it made yoga really accessible just because there were so many studios and it was a type of, um, uh, class where you would, you know, sweat and get a good workout. And that's usually, you know, what people are looking for in, in, uh, you know, movement or fitness. So, I also think to like Patricia Walden's DVD that I had in whatever, 1992 and, and how that was the only way I was able to practice yoga once I no longer had my Kripalu teacher at Brown that semester. And so we get afraid of these things like, like Bikram or a DVD or online classes or a club Pilates. But, you know, I I know how hard it is to even explain to people what Pilates is. And so if there's a club Pilates five minutes from their house and they're finally able to, most people think Pilates is the mat stuff you do on the mat at the gym. And now they're going to realize that there's actually a piece of equipment that's part of Pilates that, and then they maybe, you know, get tired of, uh, you know, the same sequence that's done a lot because they have to, because there's 12 reformers and you want to keep people safe with the, you know, simple things that are done, you know, pretty much regularly every class. So, so that no one gets hurt. And then they, you know, want to take a deeper dive and, and find nerds like us. So, and, and, and nerds like me can go take classes there and, you know, get to experience. I mean, the one year me is they have actually taught a continuing education course. It was a two day course for the UCLA physical therapist. And because I take classes there, the studio owner just let me use the entire studio for free, um, because there are 12 reformers, 12 Wanda chairs, 12 spring towers, and room for 12 mats. So I had 24 physical therapists there for two days. And it was incredible because if I had done it at UCLA, they had one reformer and one Cadillac. And I said, I won't do it that way because they need to learn and embody it, not stand around and watch me teach one person and take mm-hmm. notes. Mm-hmm. So the idea of, you know, Club Pilates being around in these studios with all this equipment and making it accessible to so many people, um, you know, it's kind of like, remember when you couldn't get fancy coffee anywhere, really, and then Starbucks came around? And I mean, obviously, there's downsides to, to you know, corporatization and, uh, you know, but if we um, look at it as, uh, you know, as choice, meaning like if you were to go, I was just in Croatia and there were no Pilates studios or if there were, they were closed for the summer because no one worked Mm -hmm. in the summer. (laughs) So it's like a different kind of, you know, problem. We have so much choice here in America and that, you know, can create uh, situations, but then there are other situations where there's, there's nothing, no choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to bring our conversation um, back around a little bit uh, to the the work, more kind of specific to your work, Trina, and, and dovetailing a little bit on the, the yoga Pilates conversation. You know, I think that uh, something we've kind of been skirting around um, is that for a lot of people, mixing modalities like you do, um, you know, bringing both of them to the table is difficult. And so... I know James had a question about this in our, in our kind of powwowing and Deborah too, about like, what's, 
for you, what's the inspiration or the something special? Like these are James's words. So James, I'm happy to let you rephrase this if you want. Um, that just, you know, allows you to kind of bring both uh, to the table with seeming ease. And then I'm just, you know, James, if you want to jump in here. No, I think you, I think you said it. I think you said it perfectly there. I mean, well, cause I was reading your words. That's why. Really? Okay. Let's see. So recapping that question, mixing modalities. Mixing modalities. Yeah. Like what's the, yes. You know, what's the something special essentially is, is I think what James was talking to us about earlier that, that just allows you to bring, you know, to do it. Yeah, I, I think that, <clears throat> I mean, my goal for my students is really to just simply demystify the inner layers of their body um, because most folks are so disembodied because they have to be in order to pay their bills. <laughs> and, you know, paying your bills usually requires sitting in front of a computer these days yeah. or driving in a car. And so whether that is, um, you know, demystifying the inner layers of a specific yoga pose or a Pilates exercise, um, it's really like the big picture is um, how can we prevent repetitive stress injuries, um, you know, and, uh, and introduce variability into your movement diet, so to speak, uh, and then just revive your passion, you know, curiosity for the human body. So, you know, when I think of Joseph Pilates or Krishnamacharya, um, you know, these were men who lived in a specific time and then Krishnamacharya, you know, taught Patabi Joyce, Bikesa Yangar, and Deskachar. And if you look at the repertoire, the physical repertoire of Pilates and modern postural yoga, which would be the Krishnamacharya, you know, what we do today, um, it's a lot of gymnastics. It comes from, yeah. you know, a, a lot of gymnastics. And I was a gymnast. So I feel like if they had the right to mix up wrestling, gymnastics, and calisthenics yeah. with, with breathing and down regulation and awareness of the whole body, then I have the right to do that. So I don't even think of yoga and Pilates as systems, <laughs> which is probably why I'm so, it's so easy for me to, I just see like, um, oh, somebody's struggling with, with this pose. Let's change its orientation to gravity. Let's flip it upside down and I bet they'll understand it better. Or, you know, this person is having trouble understanding rotation of the thorax, um, one direction and rotation of the pelvis in the other. So I'm going to teach them a bunch of Feldenkrais or Hannah somatics so that then they understand the rotational elements that are required in this Pilates exercise or, or, or yoga pose. And so I really think of myself and label myself as an interdisciplinary movement educator because, um, uh, I guess, again, it kind of goes back to my background and experiences with different religions and different, you know, sort of, uh, people who are tribal in certain ways and, and sort of, you know, all clam around a, a specific thing. And I think it's great to go deep into a specific 
sort of method that one individual human has created, but then it's equally as important to then maybe take a deep dive into another specific method that another individual has created and then just keep doing that over and over again until you're able to just address and help the person in front of you because that's all that really matters. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have to say something. <laughs> hey, hey, it, you just spoke like movement porn to me. Like, <laughs> and I'm sitting here like, oh my God, I love you. <laughs> oh, well, the feeling is mutual. I, yeah, I so, watched. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I'm sure the feel, you know, it, it would make sense because like all of those things are inspiration are inspiration to me too. So I'm just wondering, like, as, as you know, the, the last conversation that sort of started with, um, with, with Deborah and then went through, went through everyone, um, I, I wrote a little note. I'm like, okay, at first I wrote like process versus purpose. Then I wrote, crossed that out and I said, okay, your process creates your purpose. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering, like, you've kind of gone into like your process, right? Like, this is what I do and this is how I do it. What is your what is your movement purpose, Trina? Like, where are you trying to get clients, and like, what what are you doing with your work? Thank you, James. <laughs> um, I want I want them to explore and experience multiple dimensions of movement in a joyful and integrated manner. That's Beautiful. it. That's all. That's really it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, and we asked. You know, this is this is a question we've. Well, we've been asking two kind of standard questions, um, which I think, um, James, you could probably follow up with our, our, you know, kind of signature question. But this one, this question, the way I talk about this is like for my teachers that I'm mentoring, um, it's like, what, what outcome are you most dedicated to? Like, no matter who's in front of you, what their goals are, what their injuries or issues are, um, where their pain is, like, what are you really committed to? no matter what. Um, and I think, it, you know, this is, to me, it's so fascinating and it's so important. And I think it's almost like this is purpose informing, um, process, right. And mm-hmm. I think it can go both ways and it flip flops all the time. Um, but it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing to, to learn about a teacher. And it's exciting to hear from you. Uh, it was you know, so everybody that we've been asking this question of, I think is, it's just like so revealing, right? That um, when you really can understand and know for yourself, uh, what I think of is like, what's the root of your teaching? Like what's at the root, right? Of you showing up all the time and, and doing all the things that you're doing. So thank you, James, for bringing us around to that. You want to, do you want to follow up with our final question? Yeah, Sure. So Trina, we've sort of been asking everyone, um, like what, and you can answer this however you'd like to you, what is, what is the future of Pilates or where, where would you, or maybe even a better question is where would you like to see the future of Pilates kind of go or where, where are we headed with all this? I would love, uh, you know, I, I feel as though, Apparatus-based Pilates is the missing link between physical therapy and sort of, you know, what's known as general fitness, whether that's, you know, going to the gym or an athletic endeavor. 
that is underutilized and needs a better PR firm. It's like a bastard stepchild that everybody should know about and experience and not necessarily everyone knows about and is getting to experience. Mm -hmm. I just feel it's so important to have that opportunity to experience gradations of external load in a situation where you're nervous system is supported, where your body is physically supported with a multitude of closed kinetic chains. And, uh, you know, there's so much to be, I mean, gosh, I can't thank my physical therapist. A physical therapist are like the rock stars. Um, you know, the people that I, <laughs> I, some people are like, oh, this movie star. And I'm like, no, this physical therapist. <laughs> uh, but most of the time what happens is after physical therapy, you, you need uh, another stepping stone before you head back to your CrossFit box or your bar class or your Zumba class. And that to me is where apparatus-based Pilates comes in. And I just hope that more people and that, uh, uh, you know, we as an industry can, ha- uh, you know, get more folks to experience and reap the benefits of that because I just... I just think it's so important. Can I say something? Yeah. Uh, it's so it's so again very interesting to listen. Eve Gentry told me, Joe, you know, in her opinion, Joe's brilliance. She said his genius was in building the the equipment, and mm-hmm. um, just a little bit of history here. Um, so when I was first trained in Pilates, it was just the reformer. I didn't go through any kind of a, um, mm. there were no comprehensive X number of hours. It was, there just wasn't that. And um, I was actually trained initially by, a lot of people know this, but Stefan Fries, who was um, living in Beverly Hills and had this very lovely, posh, um, what do you call it? Boutique kind of studio um, to wealthy people and stars and everything. And so it was all reformer. Um, Classical music playing in the background, fountains, which <laughs> everyone had to keep going to the bathroom. But, um, but, um, so, but, uh, but the thing is, I learned all of that, and I learned all kinds of exercises or movements, if you will, on the reformer that very clearly were not part of, um, you know, what you might say is the repertoire. It was, you know, there were movements and exercises utilizing the equipment, and. Um, so where I'm headed with this, and, and I won't go into a big thing, but very simply, it's interesting. I feel like what you're asking for, Trina, is almost coming full circle, but in a much better way, back to something that was already happening. We had to make a point of educating ourselves in the fullness of the Pilates method so that what it had to offer we were all better educated and better able to utilize. We had to educate ourselves and we had to educate the, 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 the communities. We had to educate the public on actually what the heck this thing is. Mm-hmm. And so um, there were many people who knew this little bit or this little bit or this little bit, but they didn't actually understand the entirety of the method as a method. And, you know, whether you like the word system or method, that's fine. But there was so much that was missing in terms of actually utilizing it to help people because so many people out there teaching 
did not know the whole method and Mm -hmm. didn't know what was available. And so then people had to scramble to bring in, and I'm not at all making a comment on mixing modalities, but there were many years where people who wanted to teach, they had like a natural connection to this work. They felt intuitively there was something very valuable here, but there were no trainings that actually gave people the fullness Mm -hmm. unless you had, you know, you were older and coming from a long time ago. Now I feel what you're saying is very, very interesting to bring this intelligence and kind of deeper understanding of being able to talk about the equipment the way you just talked about it. Um, is great. I guess, well, I always just think in terms of scope of practice. So there are clinicians and then there are, you know, personal trainers and movement teachers. And so you, you know, you go to like a physical therapist, you know, for that scope of practice. And then when you're finished with that, uh, you're usually, you know, you need more education on movement than just that because that's, that's sort of the, you know, with any injury, you learn the most when you're not injured. So like you, you can get better from the injury, but you're never going to learn how to, you know, (laughs) prevent the next injury unless you learn about your body when you're not injured. And that's kind of where we come in. I feel. Mm -hmm. But I, I just, I'm very appreciative of the way that you describe in the vocabulary that you have, um, you know, about the equipment. I'm just saying that there was yeah. a phase when the equipment was all people did because it was cool. It was sexy. It was popular. It drew people in. It was like a thing you could advertise with. Right. Right. It's distinct from just uh, any old calisthenics class, for example. But then yeah. all of a sudden it was like, oh no. And then, or you had the people who just did a mat certification but then a lot of people are getting injured because they didn't have the support. Right, right. What I'm really trying to point at is how interesting it is to just look at the history and to watch the phases that things go through. And um, that's really it because you made such a point of talking about where you you would love it to go with regard to the appreciation of the the equipment. And I just was thinking... That's all there was when I first learned it. But yeah, but the the number of people, I mean, I know for me, the only way, reason I was ever even able to afford to experience Pilates on the equipment is because I decided to become a teacher. Like I, we at one point lived in Iowa city and the prices were low enough to where I could take a reformer class, but there were a good like 15 years where I was just dying to take private Pilates on the equipment. And I just Mm -hmm. simply couldn't afford it, but I really, really wanted to. But it's funny, we were just in Croatia and we went to this gym that was built in 1981 and all the equipment was from 1981. And, uh, um, you know, when you think about like, yeah, they would use bicycle chains instead of that, that's what they had instead of cable pulleys on some of the Nautilus equipment. And I think that, uh, you know, people can nowadays go to a gym and there's just a room filled with equipment that can help. I tell my students, you know, yeah, the personal trainer is going to tell you to stop doing the whatever exercise on that Nautilus machine because it's not functional. Like, but it's okay. Like it's actually, if you're hypermobile or you need, you know, support for your back while you're strengthening your adductors, sit on that machine, put the peg in the 10 pound thing and do it. And then next week, maybe you'll do the 15 pound because 
you know, we just need this external load and our culture is so obsessed with work out in your living room on the mat. And it's like, great, you weigh 125 pounds. That means your load is always going to be 125 pounds. There's no graded exposure. You can't pull less than your body weight, whether it's one-tenth, one-quarter, or one-half, or you can't pull double your body weight. It's always your body weight. And to me, you know, because we aren't moving as a society and we are living in this you know, in the modern world where we have phones that can, you know, take videos, we should have more than just a mat and a living room floor to address what's happening in our bodies. Can I, can I say something here? I think, you know, sitting back and listening to, to both of you talk, I think the beautiful thing that, um, like the common thread here is I think we're all just trying to get all of our all of our clients, like everyone we come into contact with to just, to just be a little more embodied. Yeah. And I think that's sort of, you know, even getting back to the like equipment talk, right? Like that's, that is a missing link or a potentially really helpful link between physical therapy and like whatever you choose to do after that. Right. Like you have all this physical therapy and it's like, here, isolate this, move here. You know, you're not moving here. There's this muscle, there's this, find this, find this, find this. And then you're kind of left out there and in um, find it yourself land. And I think, you know, like, uh, you know, the Pilates equipment is really good at that. And then getting back to like the mat exercise, like everything we do is just really about embodiment. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah. that just seems to be the common thread that, that is coming along and sort of even like, even to get to your purpose, Trina, it's just like, get people back, get people back into their body by whatever process it is. Yoga, Pilates, rolling around on the floor with a blanket, mm. like whatever it is. <laughs> exactly. So that you can participate and that you can sort of be a better you. And that's, that's from, from a listener's perspective. That's yes. Yeah, and that there's this beautiful time and place, right, for, for all of these different things. Um, but, Absolutely, yes. And I think, again, to kind of bring us back to this idea of, like, just staying open um, and whether you, you know, and, and not rigid, right? Not whether that's you want to be a part of a tribe or you want to be open to many tribes and you, you know, <coughs> your, bless you, you want your, you know, process to be expansive, I mean, it's just, um, you know, just be, be willing, right. Be open and be willing. I mean, it's, I think maybe kind of a theme that we've got going on here. Um, and also like evolve, right. Like evolve, I think to what, mm-hmm. um, you know, both that you all are speaking to and Deborah in particular, it's like, yeah, we we're watching our very young industry in terms of Pilates specifically, um, and just current, current fitness, right. Current, current movement, uh, profession, it's evolving and we, it's an orbit, right. It's always an orbit. We're just coming back around. We're coming back around and we're mm-hmm. refining and we are having deeper understandings and deeper insights as, as to what the method is and who we are as teachers of the method. And that's happening, you know, like this massive chaotic Venn diagram where they, all of these overlapping circles, um, you know, and, the, the nice thing is that all of us are coming at it from both shared uh, approaches and very different approaches. And, um, you know, I think, again, Trina, that's 
that's, I think, so much uh, the value of what you're doing, and you're doing it so well. And um, thank you a lot for being on the phone with us and, and jumping into this kind of crazy mess of all three of us grilling you. Um, oh my gosh, it was so much fun. I, I yeah, it just, I'm so uh, honored to be on the podcast because I've been a listener for so long and I, yeah. I love what you guys talk about and how deep you go discussing all of these topics that are just um, so important for uh, all the teachers out there that are at whatever point on their journey. Well, thank you so much. You guys were awesome. The conversation was great. Again, thanks, Trina, for totally showing up. I just really enjoyed listening to you, um, to your clarity, your uh, your intelligence. I, I'm very impressed with your vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm like old school. It's It's wonderful to actually be able to sit and relax and listen to somebody speak well and um, – it's very pleasurable, just literally from, from that perspective. So thank you. Oh, thank you guys. Because, uh, yeah, the three of you create the container for this type of discussion to happen, not just in, you know, in, in the studios or in people's, you know, houses, but for others to listen to. So that is the beauty of, of the internet and the, you know, the wonderful, situation that we're in today where uh, information is no longer guarded and hoarded and, um, you know, (laughs) and, and only offered up in exchange for large monetary sums. (laughs) People can learn by just listening to podcasts and, um, uh, and Googling, which it's, it's great. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Well, we hope you enjoyed another episode. So great and so much fun to have all three of us plus a wonderful guest like Trina on the podcast. Uh, I do definitely think we're getting better and better at integrating and asking questions and just going really deep. So I hope you guys are enjoying. And before you go, we wanted to make sure to share with you Trina's pro tip and hero for this episode. So all of this is in the show notes. I'm going to be really brief and then you can dig into it. There are links and all kinds of things on um, the podcast page. That's at skillfulteaching.com forward slash blog. And you'll find all the episodes there and you'll just want to go to episode 44. So Trina's pro tip is about deconstructing the more complicated Pilates exercises into the component parts to help your students and clients embody the exercise in a new way. And Trina says, one of your favorite ways to do this is to deconstruct the side over exercise on the reformer by changing its orientation to gravity so that there are more closed kinetic chains and tactile feedback. She actually has this awesome video um, that I've seen before on YouTube, her YouTube channel called The Buoyant Boomerang. Um, Really cool uh, mix and use of blankets and bands to kind of inform and the side bending action and the exercise. So the link is on the blog page and um, make sure you go there, go to Trina's YouTube channel and search for the buoyant boomerang. I know there's an actual link to this video as well on her website, which is trinaaltman.com. She says, try it out and let me know how it goes. 
Um, and if you enjoy deconstructing, she also has two online courses on Fusion Pilates EDU that you might be interested in. And um, the links to those are also on the blog post. Her hero is Gil Headley. And Trina says, if you're curious about learning anatomy from a connected holistic perspective, then she highly recommends studying with Gil. And you can find him at www.gilgilheadley.com. She took his Integral Anatomy Dissection Workshop, um, which is a six-day course, and says she just cannot recommend it enough. So all that information, um, again, you'll find all the links super, super easy. And um, yeah, it's nice to hear what's influencing her work. And um, it'll also, the YouTube video will give you a really nice sense of where Trina's coming from uh, with the deconstruction process. So if you haven't learned or you don't know about the work that she's doing um, with that, definitely want to check that out. You can reach us at thinkingpilatespodcast at gmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast and look forward to the next time. Until then, breathe deep and teach well. All the things that make you sing and tap your little toes.